We're in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. God's eternality, His sovereignty, and His omnipotence. In His second advent, Jesus Christ will right all wrongs and establish His kingdom on earth. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, which read this way, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who, and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, even so. Amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Technically, these verses introduce the following chapters. The chapters about the church. Theologically, they remind us of God's eternality, his sovereignty, and his omnipotence. A point that needed to be made, considering the circumstance that John writes about. His challenge to the churches is difficult enough in chapters 2 and 3, but what he writes about the coming tribulation is so disturbing that all the readers of this text need to be reminded of something that Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27. The eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. John sent this letter, as per verse 4, to the seven churches that are mentioned in chapters 2 and 3, which are in the Roman province of Asia, which, of course, is modern-day Turkey. We'll study those churches in detail in the coming weeks. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. This is a greeting that's very typical of the Apostle Paul. What it is is a greeting that includes both the Greek culture and the Hebrew culture. In the Greek culture, if one wanted to say hello, they would say something like this, kairi o pilo, kairi. Well, kairi is very close to the term charis, which is the term for grace. So the Christians picked up this idea, and instead of just saying kairi or hello, they used the term charis or grace to you. And it's a wonderful greeting. And also peace, a Hebrew speaker would greet you with the greeting shalom. All John is doing here is he's giving a typical greeting to his brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is a reference in this particular verse to God the Father, a point that we'll make in, the, in just a moment, a point that I hope to validate in just a moment from verse 5. Who was and who is and who is to come. This, of course, is referencing God's eternality. I want to mention some things that Norm Geisler brought up about eternality. Now tonight, even though this is about eternality, sovereignty and omnipotence, we won't mention a lot about sovereignty and omnipotence because we've done that recently. But well, we haven't covered the scriptural basis for God's eternality recently, and I'd like to do that. But first, quoting Norm Geisler, from beginning to end, the Bible declares that God is beyond time. That God existed beyond time is clear from the very first verse. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Since time doesn't begin until the universe does, this places God beyond time. Indeed, according to Hebrews, God created times. He said, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, through whom he framed the ages. The word ages, Ionis, is not a reference to the material nature of the universe, but to its unfolding temporal periods. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And this is best taken as a reference to God's self-existence. Jesus endorsed this meaning when he said, Before Abraham was, I am. As a self-existent one, before anything else existed, God is prior to time. If I might stop for just a moment, this is a very, very powerful verse in John chapter 8. Some people would say, well, Jesus is not claiming that he's deity here. The problem with that assertion is the Jews that listened to what he said certainly thought he was claiming deity because they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. They understood his claim. Before Abraham was, I am. And this is a shortened form of the Hebrew name Yahweh. He is claiming to be Yahweh in John chapter 8. Back to Geisler, in Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In Isaiah 57, 15, For this is what the high and lofty one says, He who lives forever. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, We speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. In Jesus' great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 5, he declared, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Before the world began is before time began. Thus, Jesus is proclaiming God's timelessness. Paul spoke of this grace that was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, he also spoke of the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, has promised before the beginning of time. In Titus chapter 1, verse 2. And then Geisler concludes, God not only created the ages, but he was also before the ages. To be before time and to have made time is not to be in time. Therefore, the Bible teaches that it was not a creation in time, but a creation of time that God accomplished at the beginning. The creator of time can be no more temporal than the creator of the contingent can be contingent, or the creator of an effect can be the effect himself. Now, one quick question that comes up, that's the end of Geisler's quote, one quick question that comes up about time was addressed by the Christian theologian philosopher William Lake Craig in one of his books about this particular subject. And he was asked, did he believe there's any time in eternity? Are we outside of time? Well, the answer to that question would be something like this, at least, and I, I agree with the way William Lake Craig answered it. He said, certainly we're not in time in the same way we're in time now. There won't be an earth rotating and have 24-hour periods of one of darkness and one of light. We're outside of all that. But if a philosopher, and they do, if a philosopher defines time as a sequence of events, then yes, there will be time in eternity. There will be a sequence of events in eternity. It won't be the same type of thing that we experience now when it comes to time. But even when we're in eternity, from, from the point of creation on, there will be sequences of events. That's how Christian philosophers would define that. 
the one who is and who was and who is to come. This title occurs nowhere else in Scripture except in the book of Revelation. This stresses two things, who was, who is and was, and is to come. It stresses two things. It stresses God's eternal nature. Now, this is a difficult one for a finite mind. A finite mind can comprehend something that has a beginning but no end. I hope we can comprehend that. It just keeps going and going and going and going. Maybe a little difficult for us, may challenge us, but we can comprehend that. A finite mind, I would propose to you, cannot fully comprehend the eternal nature of God. We have to accept that we can't fully comprehend it because we have finite minds. How can we ever truly comprehend something that had no beginning? Again, we accept it. I accept that God had no beginning, but in terms of really rationally working that out in my brain, I can't picture that. I can picture everlasting life, having God's life that will last forever, but God is beyond our comprehension. He's God and we're not. And some things the Bible tells us we have to accept them as true when they are so clearly stated. John is describing God the Father as the author of this text, who is and was and is to come. This is a unique title to the book of Revelation, and it stresses God's eternality. But it also stresses the continuity of God's plan. God has a plan, and it's going to work its way out. This isn't the God who is and the God who was. This is the God of the future as well. You know, you've heard it said, and it kind of has been said so much, it's almost a little camp these days. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. I don't know what the future is going to hold, but I know who's going to be there with me in the future. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, but I know who's going to be there tomorrow. So this phrase, who is, who was, and who is to come, stresses not only the present nature of God's plan and the outworking of it, but also the future nature of it. Now this is theological, but it's greatly applicational too, is it not? This is right where we live. We worry about so many things. And most of the things we worry about are things that we think might happen tomorrow, Right? or the next day, or the next day. Things that have happened in the past, we often can get our mind around that. Maybe maybe not around the circumstances that past action might have for tomorrow. It's the tomorrow stuff that worries us. What are my kids going to do tomorrow? How am I going to eat tomorrow? How am I going to pay the rent tomorrow? What's my health going to be like tomorrow? What this passage tells us, in subtle but very loud form, God's going to be there tomorrow. He's the God not only of today, He's the God of yesterday, but He's also the God of tomorrow. And that's one of the things that God's eternality should comfort, one of the ways God's eternality should comfort us. He's going to be there in the future. And since the book of Revelation is going to outline all these incredible things that are going to happen, not just in Revelation 6 through 19, but but even into the great white throne judgment and the second coming of Christ, which is the climax of the book, by the way, we know that God is going to be there and work all these things out. He never makes a promise he can't keep. Because not only is he eternal, he's also sovereign and he's omnipotent. God has made a promise to you. He's made a real big one to you. That if you'll place your faith in him, you will be able to live with him forever in a resurrection body. If God is not the God of the future as well as the present and the past, that promise doesn't mean as much as it should. We're just gambling. We're just rolling the dice. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God of the future as much as he is the God of the present or of the past. So not only does this description 
relate to his eternality, he gives us an application. And that is that his plan has continuity, and he will be there for you in the future to take care of you. God knows the future, and he is going to be there when we get there. In fact, for him, because of his omniscience, the future is as clear as the past. It's just like it was happening right now. We have nothing to worry about. He's made us a promise of eternal life. He's going to keep it. He has the power to it. He's going to be there to keep it. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who was and who is and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now here, we have one of the first things in the book of Revelation that I'm going to tell you I don't know. And I don't think anybody can be real dogmatic about it. The reason I say that is because very, very wise people, very wise expositors, uh, have differing opinions on who these seven spirits are. There seem to be two choices. One choice, seven spirit, may refer to angelic messengers. Seven principal angelic messengers. And that's the view that I would lean toward. However, some, like John Walbert and Robert Thomas, Understand this to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. These seven spirits is a reference to the singular Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic here, especially about things that the text is not dogmatic about. And I almost hate to lean a way that's different from what Dr. Walbert held. I'm always, I do that with fear and trembling, especially when it comes to the book of Revelation. I would lean more toward these being angelic messengers. Dr. Walbert and Robert Thomas held that this was a reference to the Holy Spirit. I'll be dogmatic about salvation being by grace through faith, that Jesus Christ is God, that he was born of a virgin, that he did miracles, that he proved by virtue of his words and his works that he was God Almighty. I'll be dogmatic about things like that, the existence of heaven and hell, the second coming of Christ. Those are things we're dogmatic about. The identification of these seven spirits, I'm going to be less dogmatic and give you the two choices, either the angelic messengers or the Holy Spirit himself. Jesus is then described as the faithful witness. But look at the way the text reads, and from Christ Jesus, or from Jesus Christ. That lets us know that the, that the member of the Trinity being referenced in verse 4 is not Jesus. The member of the Trinity being referenced in verse 4 is the Father. So greetings, peace to you, from the Father, and now from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Now this term, faithful witness, here in this verse and in the rest of the verse, too, the phraseology that comes up is a clear referent back to Psalm 89. It's a clear referent back to Psalm 89. And Psalm 89 is an exposition, a psalmist exposition on the Davidic covenant, which is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, to remind you what Psalm 89 is all about. Psalm 89 verse 37 reads this way, And it shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Faithful witness is Jesus Christ's present ministry of revealing what will follow. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And then there are other phrases here that describe him. The firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Those three things are all referenced back in Psalm 89. Again, a psalm that is referencing the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7. You following me? Psalm 89 is a commentary on 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Davidic Covenant. And then in this chapter of the book of Revelation, when describing Jesus, he refers us, obviously, with these allusions, if not direct quotes, back to Psalm 89, which is an allusion, or if not direct quotes, back to 2 Samuel 7, which is the Davidic Covenant. 
which said that David would have a son that would one day reign forever. It was obviously not Solomon. The son that would reign forever is Jesus. So what John is doing here, he's tying the Jesus that he's mentioning in this passage all the way back to the promise of the, to David, that he would have a son that would rule forever. It's going to come up again in the very next verse, so hold that thought for just a moment. But all three of these things, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, these all come as a, from allusions to Psalm chapter 89. The firstborn from the dead, that's a title that looks at the culmination of his past ministry when God raised him to new life at the resurrection. We studied that in Colossians chapter 1 when we saw that that was one of the characteristics of Jesus that Paul climaxed by saying, therefore he should come to have first place in everything. Remember, he was the creator, the sustainer, the, the, uh, the head of the body, the church. He's the savior. He's the firstborn all, over all creation, he's the firstborn from the dead. This is one of those titles. So this is not the only place this is used, but again, it's a reference back to the Old Testament. And in, in Psalm 89, verse 27, we have this phrase, the ruler of the kings of the earth, and Jesus is referred to as the ruler of the kings of the earth. What, what's happening here? This is actually very exciting. John is confirming in Revelation chapter 1 that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the fulfillment of the promise that was given to David. And then we have his work come up at the end of this verse. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. We mentioned this this morning, and I hope it meant something to you. If it didn't, if understanding just how much God loves you doesn't touch your heart, may I be so bold, and I don't mean to be unkind at all, there's something wrong with your heart. We've gone so far in the Christian life, we know so much about God that we've lost the wonder of it all and the intense feeling that we have when we understand just how much God loves us. In John chapter 15, we looked at a passage this morning that said, God, Jesus loves us with the same love that the Father loved him. And now we have that repeated here. To him who loves us and released us from our sins, by his blood. Those two things will always be eternally connected. His love for us and the release from sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now that's a reference to the father giving the son. We don't consider sometimes the immensity of the son's love for us as well in giving himself. The father had to make the sacrifice of his beloved son. The son had to love us enough to go through with it. He loved his father, but it wasn't that he was saying, I hate these people. Why are you making me die for these people? It was a coordinated effort. Both of them love us. And the Holy Spirit does too. It's just not referenced here. God loves you. And I hope you don't advance so far in your Christian life that that doesn't excite you. If it does, something's wrong with your spiritual life. You've been coasting, and we all coast from time to time. But that doesn't motivate you or excite you to know that Jesus really does love you. And that was the motivation for the Father and the Son, for the Son to go to the cross and released us from our sins by his blood. There may only be two or three of us in here that have studied the Greek language, but that term releases our friend Luo. The grammars begin with that because it's the most regular of the verbs, I guess, and you can work with that as, as you could with some of the irregular verbs. But Luo has a breadth of meaning. It could be to, to release or to, to remove. 
And I think that's exactly what's happening here. And he released us from our sins, and maybe implied from the bondage of our sins or from the penalty of our sins by virtue of his blood. Now, the term, anytime you see the word blood come up in relation to the cross of Christ, we need to recognize that it's more than simply the blood, the liquid that went through Jesus' veins. In other words, it's more than just his physical death that's in view. In Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the writer of that particular article describes the blood of Christ as a pregnant verbal symbol, a pregnant verbal symbol describing the entirety of the work of Christ on the cross. So when you see the phrase, the blood of Christ in the scriptures, it's talking about all that Christ did to secure our salvation. In addition to his physical death, he died spiritually on the cross. In fact, he said it is finished while he was still alive. Almost by definition, he had to still be alive when he said it. It's completed. He actually said something after that. So what we see here is a beautiful, wonderful, incredible promise based upon God's love. He has released us from our sins by his blood. Now, there's a question we have to ask ourselves here. Did he release us or did he not? Have you been forgiven from the eternal penalty of sin or have you not? Does the forgiveness from the eternal penalty of sin await some future judgment or is it a present reality? I must tell you, biblically, it is a present reality. Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 8, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come, which would include any future judgment, shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't have to worry about a future judgment. You have eternal life right now. You have the forgiveness of sins right now. It's not like later on you'll be forgiven from the eternal penalty of sin. It is a present reality, and that's something else to get excited about. So many theologians and pastors attempt to hold us personally accountable for our sins. Now, I'm not talking about the sins we commit after salvation, for which God certainly holds us accountable. I'm not talking about the kind of accountability that's mentioned in the, in the epistles in terms of holding one another accountable. We're not talking about that at all. We're saying that they hold over us through guilt and fear the possibility that maybe this forgiveness isn't a permanent forgiveness. Forgave you today, they say, God may say, but if you do this, then I'm removing that forgiveness. You know what that is? That's motivating by guilt and by fear. And I know many of you have a Roman Catholic background, but if I could say, again, with all the love of Christ, that's the way Rome has motivated for centuries. It's a faith of fear. And if you don't toe the line, if you upset the pope or the priest or the bishop, they may pronounce something on you. They may not give you last rites. Or they, may, they, have, they hold your eternal life in their hands. And this is saying, no, Jesus has already released you. Now, either he did or he didn't. And if he didn't, then this is an untrue statement. But if he already did, then I want you to sleep comfortably tonight. I don't want you to use it as a license to sin after salvation. That's just plain foolish. Yeah, just, just get ready for discipline. The discipline's not going to be losing your eternal life. But you don't mock God like that. You don't just behave any way you want to behave and not be disciplined. But he's never going to remove that eternal life from you or the 
forgiveness from the eternal penalty of sin. It was made by his blood. It's not a small point because guilt and fear can be used, and sometimes God uses it to move us to a more positive place. Is anybody in here a psychiatrist or psychologist? I don't think we have any psychologists here today. Okay, then I'll ask you. If you're guilty, but yet you have no feeling of guilt or remorse whatsoever, do you remember what they call that in psychology? A sociopath. That's exactly right. It's not healthy. It's being a sociopath. If you are guilty and you feel guilty, that's just being a normal human being. If you've done something for which you should feel remorse and you feel remorse, that's just being a normal human being and a healthy human being both psychologically and spiritually. However, if you have done something and you feel no guilt at all, you feel nothing at all, then there's probably something wrong with you psychologically. It doesn't mean you're a spiritual giant because you don't feel anything. God gave you these feelings to motivate you to confess the sin and turn away from it. And sometimes we hold on to these things too long. That's true. If I'm not guilty anymore, if God's forgiven me and I continue to hold, up, hold on to this guilt, then that's something that we need to sit down and talk about. However, there may be things for which you have remorse the rest of your life. I know somebody that affected the death of a young person, a young child, because they were careless in the way they were driving, and somebody died because of it. Somebody's little child died because they were careless. And that person knows they've been forgiven from that sin, but that person still has remorse over it and will have remorse for the rest of their life. That's just part of the normal human condition. Now, God can help you through the remorse, but we don't just act like it never happened in order to get past it. So guilt and fear can be positive motivations if God is the one doing the use of those two particular techniques. But it's too often used. These two things are too often used in a sense of malicious manipulation for people to serve their own ends. God can use guilt and fear in a positive way, but watch out for pastors or theologians or whole churches that use it to manipulate your behavior. That's not what this is all about. We have been forgiven or released from our sins by his blood. And then in verse 6, And he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. And then the doxology here, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus Christ has also made us a kingdom corporately and priests to his God and Father. And this is another evidence of the way he loves us. Jesus has the right to rule, although he's not currently seated, seated on the Davidic throne, ruling over the earth from Jerusalem. That's going to come at a different time following the tribulation. But here in this verse, he's made us a kingdom. At present time, we're a kingdom. Now, this is not a substitute for the future millennial reign of Christ. He will literally rule from Jerusalem on the Davidic throne. But right now, he's made us into a kingdom. And if we take it even further, he's made us into a kingdom priests to his God and Father. And some people have taken this, I think rightly so, a kingdom of priests. We're a kingdom of priests. You have a priesthood. You are not dependent on, upon somebody else to take your needs to the Father. You can go yourself. In the Old Testament, they had a specialized priesthood. In our dispensation, we don't. And we might, we've, we've been that way all of our lives. We've never known anything different. But this is a wonderful Blessing that comes up in verse 6. He's made us to be a kingdom, comma, priest to his God and Father. We have a phrase here at the end, amen or amen. This means 
something like, I believe it, or it could be understood as, so let it be, or so be it. And here, it signifies what we've been talking about the last two weeks. It signifies worship. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. That's worshipful. And then he says, amen. That's an act of worship. Now, I know there have been a lot of different places in the world where they, they overuse this. I, I know. Somebody will say good morning and everybody will say amen. Well, okay. But it's not a sin if our friend Isaiah sang this morning. I said it as soon as he was finished. Amen. That's, that's wonderful. It's an act of worship, not for Isaiah, but we're saying that to God. A, we amen to what he said. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. So this is an act of worship. It's going to come up again here in just a moment. Now, in just a, a few short moments, I'd like to consider the next two verses, verses 7 and 8, because these verses contain the first prophetic oracle of the book. In verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, even so. Amen. Again, we have a phrase of worship at the end of verse 7. Behold is the Greek term idu, and it introduces a glorious announcement. Many expositors consider this to be the key verse in the book. This verse tells us, what the point of the whole book is about. The theme of the book is the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ over all of his enemies and the establishment of his earthly kingdom. Do you see why just a moment ago John referred us back to Psalm 89, which was a reference back to the Davidic covenant? What happens in the book of Revelation is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The son that was promised that would rule forever is being revealed here. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Now, let's not mistake this, or let's not confuse it with the resurrection of the church. The resurrection of the church will have happened seven years before this. And this doesn't describe the, the resurrection of the church, commonly called the rapture. For the first thing, every eye will not see Jesus in his coming at the re resurrection of the church. And in fact, he doesn't come all the way to earth at that point. We meet him in the clouds, and only those who are his own will see him at that point. But in the future, somehow, everybody on earth is going to see Jesus' second coming. I've heard theories on how that happens. Perhaps he, he starts in the heavens and then circles the earth several times where everybody could see him. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I know it's going to happen that every eye on earth at the second advent, the culmination, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, at the second advent, every eye will see him. And then in verse 7, again, what, what a phrase, even those who pierced him. Now, this is a reference back to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It's probably not limited to the Jews that were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, the Romans crucified him, but remember there was a group of Jews yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Certainly, those Jews are in view, but it seems as though all the enemies of God are in view at this point. They're all lumped in with this phrase, those who pierced him. Listen to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, the, the passage that is obviously being referenced here. In that passage, it says this, they will look upon me, and in Zechariah chapter 12, it's Yahweh that is speaking. Okay. 
they will look upon me, the one that they have pierced. And they were mourned for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieved bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Now that's a prophecy. And the writer, John, in Revelation picks up that prophecy again. There's one interesting thing here, if I might take a slight detour, just a very slight, very temporary detour. I love Jehovah's Witnesses. The reason I love them is because God loves them too. In fact, oftentimes they'll come on our street here and they go door to door. They, they won't come and talk, talk to me. It would be counterproductive for them. I understand. That's no problem. But recently I told them they, they were all parked their cars were halfway on the street. I went over to them and they, they thought I was going to run them off. But I said, no, no, why don't you all park your cars here in the parking lot? You don't have to park it out there on the street. And If you get tired of talking to people over there, come talk to me. I'll, I'll be happy to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you. And they were so stunned, but they did it. And they were, you know, hey, thank you. Because I had a bunch of little kids with them. They didn't want them running around the street. I love them, but one of the things that they're so confused about, well, several, <laughs> the gospel is one, but the deity of Christ is another. I asked a Jehovah's Witness this one time, and it, it really turned the light switch on for them. If you go back to Zechariah chapter 12, it's clear that Yahweh, or Jehovah, is the one that's speaking there. They will look upon me that they have pierced. And it's clear that that's Yahweh speaking. But when you get to John chapter 19, verse 37, John ascribes that to Jesus in the crucifixion. They will look upon the one that they have pierced in John chapter 19, verse 37. John says it was fulfilled in Jesus. You see the link between, and why I would bring in Jehovah's Witnesses up with respect to this? In that passage, in the John chapter 19 passage, John is, again, going back to the Old Testament, a reference to Yahweh, who is God, of course, Yahweh is the one that's pierced in John chapter 19. It's Jesus that's pierced. It's really tough not to understand Jesus as Yahweh. You follow? So many things could be cleared up with so many of the fringe groups. If we just look back to our Bibles, so many things could be cleared up. This great text, verse 7, announces the climactic event in Revelation, the return of Jesus Christ to the earth, to right all wrongs and to establish his rulership on earth. He has sovereignty over the earth right now. He has the right to rule right now. But he is not ruling in Jerusalem from the Davidic throne over all the earth. He's on a throne. He's sitting next to God the Father, but sitting on the Davidic throne is, will await a future time. All that intervenes between this verse and chapter 19, verses 11 through 16 leads up to that one event. Everything that happens from Revelation chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19, all these tribulation events are all setting the stage for the second coming of Jesus. Now, you do, do you remember there's a difference between Jesus' resurrection of the church and his second coming? In the resurrection of the church, he doesn't actually come all the way back to earth. We go meet him. In the second coming, he comes back to establish his kingdom on earth the one that was rejected in Matthew chapter 12. He comes back to establish his kingdom and will come with him at that point. We have Old Testament references. We have a reference from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And then we also have a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel chapter 7 provides a key focus for John throughout this entire book. 31 references to Daniel chapter 7. 
in the book of Revelation. That's why we studied Daniel before we studied Revelation. This idea of coming and establishing his kingdom is an Old Testament idea that John picks up on here. Even so, amen. Again, this is a phrase of worship that provides firm assurance, our understanding that there's a firm assurance that Jesus Christ is coming just like it's been prophesied. Then quickly, in verse 8, and we'll pick up, we'll start here next time. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Because of this second phrase, there's a controversy as to who this is referencing. Is this referencing the Father again, or is it referencing Jesus? And again, expositors are split. I will give you my opinion. My opinion is that it's referencing Jesus here and giving him the same eternality that the Father has. Jesus is saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He, of course, is using the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. The ancient Greeks in classical times did not have a way of describing infinity or eternality. If they wanted to describe something that we would describe as infinite or that we would describe as an eternal, they would have used the phrase Alpha Omega, meaning it encompasses the whole thing. Now, in our mind of thinking, it wouldn't be from A to Z because there could be something before A and after Z, but in their minds, that was it. It was a classical Greek phrase that indicated eternality. And by the way, I didn't learn that in seminary. I learned that from a classical Greek professor. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. This is a phrase that is asserting and affirming Jesus' eternality. So what are we to take from this tonight? I hope you take these things. I hope you take it that Jesus is sovereign and that he's omnipotent. We see that by establishing his kingdom. He has the right to do it, the power to do it, but also his eternality. The key idea that I wanted to bring up tonight, and I think the key idea that is presented in this passage that along with the fact that he's going to come again and climaxes the whole of human history. But the God that you worship is not just the God of the present or a God of the past. He's also the God of the future. And whatever tomorrow brings, you need to know that when you wake up in the morning, Jesus Christ will be there with you. And when you wake up the next day, he'll be there with you. You don't know what the future holds. But we do know who is going to be there with you and has made promises to take care of you through it all.